Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lightspeed. Hello there, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. The magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, who had two new anthologies come out recently, and I'm going to plug them right now. The first, from Tor Books, is the Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination. For more information on that, visit johnjosephadams.com slash mad-scientists-guide. There is also Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond, which you can learn more about at johnjosephadams.com slash oz-reimagined. But the really, really big news is that Lightspeed Magazine has two stories which are finalists for the Nebula Award. And the magazine itself is once again a finalist for a Hugo Award in the Best Semi-Prozine category. Also, as a bonus, our editor, John Joseph Adams, is once again in the running for a Hugo in the Best Editor Short Form category. Congratulations and good luck goes out to all of the other nominees. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get back to the business of the podcast. The stories here are produced by Skyboat Road Company, Inc., spearheaded by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrator Stefan Rudnicki, and that is in association with Jim Freund. So let's roll with this week's story. Our first offering for the April issue is A Love Supreme by Kathleen Angunin. The story is read for you by Claire Bloom. Kathleen Angunin is the author of seven novels, the most recent being This Shared Dream, Tor Books, July 2011. In War Times won the John W. Campbell Award for Best Science Fiction Novel of 2007, and it was also the American Library Association's Best Sci-Fi Novel for that year. Kathleen Angunin is the author of seven novels, the most recent being This Shared Dream, Tor Books, July 2011. In War Times won the John W. Campbell Award for Best Science Fiction Novel of 2007, and it was also the American Library Association's Best Sci-Fi Novel for that year. Previous novels were finalists for the Nebula, Clark, and BSFA Awards. Angels and You Dogs, a short story collection, will be published by PS Publishing in 2012. And given that it's 2013 right now, that might be available now. She is working on her eighth novel, Hemingway's Hurricane, and is a visiting professor in the School of Literature, Communication, and Culture at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, Georgia. And that does it for this week's intro. So without further ado, let's make the jump to light speed. A Love Supreme by Kathleen Ann Goonan Ellie Santos Smith grabs a clean white coat as spring dawn brightens her worn oriental rug and streaks with sun her only luxury, a grand piano. She runs a comb through her jet black hair, cut short because she thinks that makes her look older. Her smooth skin glows with twenty-ish health, though she is forty-seven. Patients distrust young doctors. Nanomed infusions keep her body young, her mind sharp, and mitigate her crippling agoraphobia. She has worked hard to be able to live in a minuscule apartment in The Enclave, a safe, low-population-density bubble in Washington, D.C. 
In this small, pure paradise, the incredibly rich claim more cubic feet than most people in the world can dream of, dine on rare organic food, and ingest the most finely tuned infusions. She hates herself for needing this, but she does. If she is to help anyone, if she is to put her hard-won training to use, she does. She can walk to the longevity center for her frequent infusions, and after that, to her job as an emergency physician at Capitol Hospital without being trapped in a car, a subway, a plane. Her phone rings. Dad? His voice gravelly, odd. Not that she's heard from him in a long time. Hi, hun. She thinks blue for a moment. His eyes, tear-shimmered blue beneath a thatch of sun-whitened hair all those years ago. He had been abruptly summoned from his marine biology kingdom the day her mother was murdered as Ellie watched during the first East Coast riot. He'd fled back to his undersea haven soon afterwards, leaving her to grandma and boarding school. Can we talk later? My infusion is overdue. Then I'm working emergency till seven, she says. She imagines him in the teak cabin of his Key West-anchored sloop, stubbornly aging. Never mind. He hangs up. Same old game. She should be used to his gruff elusiveness, but it always hurts. Her father, a celebrated marine biologist with a worm named after him, quit academia once she got her college scholarships and spent decades painting bizarre ocean creatures, gaining a small international following. Downstairs, the doorman smiles. She steps out into her safe haven, a few tree-lined blocks of historic mansions, townhomes, restaurants, and shops, bounded on one side by Connecticut Avenue and patrolled by security professionals, thugs to her mind, for which she pays a hefty neighborhood fee. They keep out the homeless, the hungry, the desperate, and the different. Once outside this discreet, invisible boundary, she will have to pass through a few blocks she calls the gauntlet, which throbs with the dense crowds that now fill most of the cities on earth before reaching the hospital where she works. Only her nanomed infusions keep panic at bay. In front of her, a lone bicyclist splashes through puddles, and nearby Don Stapleton descends the broad stairs of Forever, a 1900 vintage condominium mansion of 30 wealthy centenarians, some of whom worked hard to establish the enclave. He waves. Doc, lovely morning. Trapped. She could swear he hacks her schedule. White dreads halo his dark, handsome face. Coffee on the veranda? She glances over at the broad Victorian porch, with wicker chairs, hanging ferns, and eight limber residents, sun-saluting as Ella Fitzgerald sings. Six hundred million centenarians seize the last recipients of Social Security.
It is the lifeline of most seas, but only slightly augments the wealth the people in forever acquired during successful professional lives. Thanks, but I'm late. I'll walk with you. We have a new offer. Her throat constricts. Sorry, but no. The work she knows would be a nightmare. Perpetually on call for a household of detail-oriented hypochondriacs, crushed by constant, whimsical, impossible demands. She walks faster toward her job in the hospital center, where her patients are poor and in desperate need of her skills. They are the people to whom she has devoted her training and her life. Don persists. You got Mrs. Diubsky an emergency transfusion. Cut through red tape. Saved her life. I'm not a boutique M.D., you are a nanomedicine expert. Fewer patients might be less stressful for you. That could be a great change, given your phobia. Nosy bastard. He smiles. Public information. I'm sending the offer. The ping in her ear registers its reception, and Dawn falls behind. In a few blocks, she is at DuPont Circle. The implanted microchip that gives her access to the enclave now signals with a low beep that she is unprotected. She takes a deep breath. Masses of children, teenagers, everyone young. Shanties, ever-milling crowds, food lines, rank odors, and a constant assault of raised voices, ugly music, honking horns. The phone her father calling back. We need to talk. I'm dying. A break in her stride. Where are you? Hospice at Sunnyland. Hepatocellular carcinoma. The words roll off his educated tongue. When were you diagnosed? Three months ago. She rages. Why didn't you call? It's not too late. Regeneration infusions... Her brain teems with nanomed therapies, most out of his financial reach since he has stubbornly avoided anything other than mandatory insurance, and his age, 85, precludes expensive, life-extending measures. I'm ready to go, Ellie. They give me two, three days. I just want you now. I wanted you then, all those years, you were gone. You didn't love me. I need to talk to your doctor. That gravelly laugh. <laughs> You're kidding, right? I was diagnosed by a nurse practitioner after an ambulance ride foisted on me by a well-meaning neighbor. I'm in the benevolent hands of the state, deprived of a death at sea. No docs at Sunnyland. No surprise, that. I can't jump on a plane. It's okay. I reap what I've sowed. Her urge to get to him, to see him, brings her to sudden tears, surprising her. But she'd been taken off a plane in a straitjacket when she was twelve. Even first class didn't help. You don't understand. It's not that. It's not our past, our hopeless inability to communicate. Hun... You may not think so. 
he hangs up again. She's always urged her father to live with her. In that bubble, no thanks. A relief, and they both know it. She can't live with people. Her short marriage hammered that home. Her only close companions are dead musicians and her piano, which she plays long into the night. Ellie surfaces from their conversation angry, without her insulating defenses, to endless, oncoming faces, roaring buses, choking exhaust. She's powerless. He's stubborn, and she's let his stubbornness kill him. You can control everything else in your life, but you can't control your father. Damned if she can't. She recalls recent nanomed updates and rearranges these components in the work of art that is her own mind. Heart-pounding, she makes it to the door of the infusion center, passing the block-long line of those hoping for an insurance reprieve, shows her card, and slips inside. The receptionist is new. Ellie takes a deep breath and rolls the dice. It's not like her, but she has no choice. Add 17 and 43. That's not allowed. I'm code R1. Ellie hates exposing herself to pity. Her expensive infusions are government compensation to victims of the deadliest riot in U.S. history, the riot in which Ellie's mother died, the riot that began a decade of turmoil around the time the world's population passed 8 billion. Few people, not even professionals like Ellie, can afford what she gets. Life extension, nanomed components updated in real time. Nanomeds could be manufactured cheaply. Prices are kept high. The official explanation is the cost of R and D, the experimental nature of nanomeds. The real truth is overpopulation and a fear of more C's. She lies on a gurney in the infusion room. Designer nanomeds maintain her phenomenal memory, a double-edged sword for those memories trigger panic. After Ellie witnessed her mother's murder, her psychiatrist pressured her father to allow therapeutic memory mediation, erasure. Her father refused, wanting Ellie to have that choice when she was older. For that she is thankful. Those memories make living in her bubble imperative, but they are her. Her infusions are a balancing act, holding the possibility of neuronal damage but she has the authority to design her own cocktail. Adding 17 and 43 will radically change the balance, removing her fear. She will probably be able to leave her bubble, get on the plane. She is not sure what other changes might occur. Her carefully constructed life could fall apart. Doc, you know you can't do this. John, her regular nurse. You know I can. It's dangerous. This isn't like you. The latest bulletin, I know. Paradoxical effects from these latest upgrades. I have to fly tonight. John sighs. You want to listen to jazz during the infusion? Of course. Slight sting of needle. 
She closes her eyes, and memories assail her. Lavender dusk, limbed by a horizon of bare brown trees, stopped on the beltway. Ten lanes of static oncoming lights, the usual soothing interlude between kindergarten and supper. Ellie strapped in her seat, killing 3D aliens, Mom up front chanting a love supreme with John Coltrane, head bobbing, still in her white coat after a day in the hospital. Then she gasps. Striding down an exit ramp, an army of people flows among the cars, ragged clothes, muffled chants, a bat, smashed windows, her mother sprawled over the seat, screaming, Don't hurt my niña! Blood spatters her mother's white coat and Ellie's video screen. Years later, driving while in medical school, a flood of oncoming lights. The world under construction, always. Cranes, barrels, trucks of supplies to accommodate people who keep appearing, appearing, filling every space in great towers and on vast artificial islands. Ellie wants to help, like Mother. Driving through fear will make her strong. Finally, strength fails. She flips, can't function. The usual infusions are ineffective. City centers needing her expertise have become unlivable. In D.C., after a long, difficult search, she finds her oasis. The price? She can't ever leave. Doc? She opens her eyes and wonders, when did I stop being able to live? She sits up. I shouldn't be jittery right after an infusion. You knew you were taking a risk. I'll take a blood sample. No time. And John? Doc? Don't use Coltrane again. I didn't. There is no way she can avoid her shift in the emergency room. There is no one to take her place. She leaves the infusion center and makes a plane reservation for a flight after her shift while striding New Hampshire Avenue. Only a block to the hospital, and now post-infusion, throngs effuse love, do not seethe with malicious intent, do not lie in wait to make deadly, unexpected moves. She arrives at the hospital and is relaxed, surprised to be breathing easy as she is scanned in and checked for weapons. She pushes her arms into her white coat and grabs a chart. It is paradoxically frightening to feel so utterly good in this whirring hellhole where daily she strives, with heartbreakingly limited success, to deprive death of its staggering bounty. She slips inside a curtained space. Mr. Billings? He lies on the exam table, unshaven-faced, bruised, a police officer beside him. What happened? The cop says, He started a bar fight, not the first time. Not true. Billings glares at the cop. He never remembers. She broke my arm. That's a lie. 
Ellie says to the cop. You'll have to step outside. He's dangerous. He just exploded. Out. She begins her exam. Your arm? Hurts like hell. Ellie shines a flashlight in Billings' eyes. Where'd you get this scar on your forehead? Incoming. Ten years ago. Everybody else died. Sit up. She hammers his knee. Been treated for PTSD? Borderline. They won't pay. I'm ordering pain meds and an x-ray of your arm. I'll be back in a little while. Her next patient needs a kidney update. She sits on the table, puffy, staring at her knotted hands. Ellie has become a technician and joined from stepping outside finely drawn boundaries. Care is rationed. HMOs have made medicine a corporate algorithm doing the greatest good for the most people. Her MD gives her the power to override ticks in the system. She knows how far she can push the limits and which procedures are too expensive, will tip the balance and get her censured. The kidney treatment is out of bounds. Ellie hesitates, approves it. You'll feel better soon. Tears in the patient's eyes. I thought, new protocol. Boutique doctors practice as they see fit because the rich bypass the corporate algorithm. As she leaves the patient, she can't help checking Forever's offer, the one Don Stapleton keeps pushing. Staggeringly huge. She couldn't possibly provide services worth that. The seas would devour her. And she would be treating them forever. The same people. Her emergency skills would atrophy. A trap. But one more override, and she might be out on her ass. She knows that her recklessness is because of her infusion. She just needs to make it to the end of her shift. After an hour, she gets Billings' results. Fractured ulna, this bone, she tells him, touching it. I'm ordering a mending infusion. Hear that? Billings yells. The cop is startled awake. Ellie asks Billings, How would you like to stay out of bar fights and feel better? Can't afford it. I only need your consent. You'll get neuroplasticity meds and counseling. You have to promise me you'll go to counseling or it won't work. You sure, Doc? I mean, I'm sure. Billings reminds her of her father, at the mercy of the unfeeling algorithm. He'd had choices, though, more choices than Billings. She has always avoided thoughts about the tangle of their lives. Except, she thinks, surprising herself, they come out through my fingers, hours and hours and hours at night. They come out when I improvise, play jazz. They're not as far away as I think. Filled with momentary wonder, she draws back the curtain where the eternal next patient sits. Everything seems so preternaturally sharp, so full of potential for too much thought that she aches for her shift to end. On the red eye, 
Ellie stares out the window of the plane at a solid, unending glare of light all the way down the East Coast, imagining all those people, and does not go fetal. She does not scream. She has not called her father. As she steps from the cab at Sunnyland, she feels as relaxed as if she had run ten miles on a treadmill. High-rises surround her, receding grids of light blocking any other view. Twenty thousand elderly live here on thirty acres, a template reproduced nationally. Those living here did not watch their pennies. They cannot catch the wave of technology for a long-term ride. Ellie will always have a job. The life she worked for is bright and assured, an enviable personal future, a future where she will hide from time, emotion, and change. Irked at her thoughts, she grabs her bag and enters the lobby of her father's building. On the hospice floor, visitors nap in chairs, maintaining vigil. Outside her father's room, a whiff of whiskey as she passes two chatting, weathered men in fishing caps. Inside, strings of colored lights, low revelry, and Coltrane's sacks wailing for the second time in 24 hours, this time no dream. Her fingers flex in a near-unconscious riff. She spots her father in a reclining chair. His face, frighteningly thin, is lit on one side by a blinking blue light. A faint smile plays across his face. A beer is in his hand. She flies to him. Dad! He blinks, grins, flash of overwhelmingly blue eyes, and she is once again five. Ellie, come to see the old man off after all, eh? I'm getting you out of here. Good God, Ellie, I'm getting morphine. Don't mess with it. It's not funny. Give me a more detailed diagnosis. Certain and welcome death. Internment in the sea. Making room for younger people who are happy to be alive. You can recover, her father says gently. This is hospice. Four days of rationed grace. They know how to meet it out fine. No needles, no tubes, no machines. I skipped that. I probably got whatever I have long ago when I was torturing rare marine organisms instead of coming home to see you. Fair play. Fair play? I missed you, Dad. Of course I did. I needed you. But that has nothing to do with your choosing to die. What have they done so far? He shrugs. Two infusions last month. Standard issue. They didn't work. You didn't call. He speaks slowly, as if to a child, with equal emphasis on each word. I just didn't want to. She grasps it all, his terrible stubbornness and hers, and opens her phone. What are you doing? Calling an ambulance. Ellie, Ellie, 
No one will pay for it. And where do you think you'll take me? An infusion clinic. I'll pay. <laughs> Not even you have that much money. I have a new job offer. I'll take care of you. I'll sell my apartment. It's worth a lot. We can live in the centenarian house. Beautiful, interesting people. You'll love it. Don't tell me what I'll love. She sees a sheen of sweat on his forehead. She is a bit ashamed, but not enough to stop. She shouts, You're a foolish old man! He smiles. I hope so. He waves. Keep talking, everybody. She's just my daughter. Chatter resumes. He says quietly, You might think that I don't know you, Ellie, but I do. Remember that summer you spent with me after college when you were deciding what to do with your life? Yes, too brief, but I know you like I know myself. He pauses for breath. You have to do what moves you, and what moves you is your job, as it is. Whatever you're doing, however crazy it looks to me, it works. Don't sacrifice that job to help me. I don't want it. Second point, don't interrupt. I'm getting tired. I've had a great life, despite our tragedy. I don't want to live anywhere but on my boat. If you do anything without my consent, I will never forgive you. I'm serious, and I don't ever again want the kind of pain I've had the past six months. I wouldn't have let you have that pain. To her surprise, Ellie begins to cry. You hid it from me. You didn't want my help. What has my life been about if I can't even help my own father? You'd rather die than have my help. She drops to the bed, covers her face, and sobs. Ellie, look at me. She wipes her face on her sleeve. Sorry. Don't be. I haven't seen you cry since your mother died. You haven't seen me much. Holidays, birthdays. She hears the ten-year-old in her voice. Her two annual summer weeks at sea with her father ending once again. Fair shot. He pauses. It's over. The oceans are polluted beyond repair. You can help restore them. You... This place that seems so awful to you, this is what it's like everywhere now. Even worse, I've been all around the world. I've done my part. I'm proud that a worm is named after me. He draws a deep breath, coughs, looks at her squarely. I'm proud of you. Your mother would be so proud of you. Another long pause while she grabs a tissue, blows her nose, wipes her face. You can do one thing for me. What? Let's move this party to my boat. I was kidnapped. I don't want to die here. 
order somebody to bring a piano to the dock, and you can play me out. I haven't heard you play in a long, long time. It's like heaven to me. It always reminds me of the first time I went diving. But that's all I want of you. We can't get back the years I wasted. Do this for me, please. She waits for the old anger, the old rage to bubble up and spew out. Her hand moves toward her phone, then stops. You know how to improvise. Instead of the ambulance call, there is a memory, one of the many she has hugged to herself all these years, refusing to release it. It's the new infusion that allows it to surface, she knows, but that does not make it any less valuable. A winter day at her grandmother's. The holidays. She is playing the piano. She begins with one learned set piece, Bach. Then there is a shift. She hears her mother as if she were music, Coltrane, jazz. She threads new notes to Bach, adjusts cadence, moves into new space, improvises, loses herself in sound, falling snow, her father leaning on the piano as tears roll down his face. She remembers that she played for hours. She looks directly at him, seeing him as if for the first time, a person separate from herself, from her needs, from her ways of making her own life small and safe. She nods. All right, Dad. Let's go. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the tale. If so, and if you find the time, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. And if you haven't already subscribed to Lightspeed Magazine, please take a moment to consider it and check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. The stories are produced by Skyboat Road Company, Inc., which is spearheaded by the Audi and Grammy award-winning narrator Stefan Rutnicki and in association with Jim Freund. We also hope you'll check out Lightspeed Year One, a collection of audio stories from this podcast's first Hugo-nominated year. Look for it at audible.com. And that's all for now. Thanks for listening. Cheers from all of us at Lightspeed Magazine. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. 
and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.